Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that we will hear your message to us today because on the one hand, this could come across as a real downer, but on the other hand, it could also come across as, as a release and to help us put our eyes in the right place in difficult times. So, Lord, I pray for that outcome. Let your spirit speak to us in Jesus' name, amen. So the reason I say that is because what I want to talk to you today about is the failure of man. And by the end, I would like you to have reached a point where you have minimal confidence in humanity's ability to solve its own problems. Now, that could sound like a rather negative course, but there's hope. And there's a reason I want you to hear this. And and to kind of demonstrate that, we're going to take a little bit of a, a possibly circuitous journey here to get to that point. And I want to start with an image. And it is an ichthus. How many of you know what an ichthus is? We've got a couple hands there. Well, we don't speak Greek, do we? It's a Greek word. And it's a Greek word that means fish. And you might recognize this. You ever seen one of those? That's an ichthus. That's a fish. Now, now, why do we have it? Well, it became a clever code for the early Christians. It represented someone who was a Christian. And I'll tell you why in just a second. Um, but there were a couple forms to it. So I want you to see the next slide here. Um, this is the word itself. Those are Greek letters. This is actually an ancient inscription. So that's uh, the, the eye-looking letter, is iota or yoda. Um, then the X is a chi, then a theta, an epsilon, and a sigma. That spells ichthus. Now, you see that wheel, that interesting wheel with all the lines in it? That was also code. Now, realize early Christians didn't live in a society that was Christian. They lived in a pagan society, and they had to have little ways to communicate with each other. That wheel is actually that word. And let me show you how it's there. You see the line down the middle? That's the first letter. You see the lines like this, the cross lines? That's the chi. You see the line across the center within the circle? That's the theta. Then the epsilon, you can see the, the Y-looking letter. Now the sigma's a little harder to find. You gotta go around to the middle, down, and then kind of looping around. That was code for ichthus. Well, why ichthus? Why did it matter? Well, there's a lot of things about fish in the gospel. Uh, for example, there's the story where Jesus tells them, throw the net on the other side of the boat, and they pull in all these fish, or go fish in the middle of the day, and they catch all these fish. So, so fish was a sign of miracles that Jesus did, but that's not the primary reason. There was also the parable Jesus told, the parable of the net. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, and it catches all kinds of fish in it. So in that sense, believers are kind of like fish, but that wasn't really the reason. There was the story of Peter. Do you remember the story of Peter and the temple tax? And, and Jesus says, who do you think pays temple tax? And they, they go back and forth, and Jesus says, so that, so that they'll think we're part of this, go to the lake, throw in a line, and the first fish you catch will have a coin in its mouth. Take the coin and pay our tax. Kind of a crazy story. But that's not it either. And it's not even the fact that most of the disciples, or a lot of the disciples, were fishermen, that God said, I will now make you fishers of men. That's not even it either. The primary reason ichthus came to be a symbol for Christianity is because it turns out this Greek word for fish 
is a perfect acronym of the core confession of the Christian faith. And here's how it goes. So the first letter, the Yoda, is the first letter of the word Jesus. What is, how would we say Jesus today? Jesus, okay? The second letter, the Chi, is the first letter of Christos. From that we get Christ. The third letter, Theta, is the first letter of the word Theos. That's the word for God. The next letter, the Epsilon, is for Weos, which is son or son of. And then the last letter, Sigma, is the first letter in the word Sater, which means Savior. So fish, ichthus, is an acronym for Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Do you remember what I told you was the core conviction of Christianity, that when you believe it, you have become a Christian? When you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by extension, Savior. So ichthus is the perfect symbol, at least in Greek, of that core confession of the faith. And for that reason, it developed... Uh, as a symbol amongst the early Christians that they would put on places of meeting and things like this to signify that you are a Christian. Now, there's even some evidence that this was used in a hostile culture as a way for Christians to identify each other. That in the course of a conversation, one of the people in the conversation would just sort of casually, with one of their feet, make an ark in the dirt. Now, if that person wasn't a Christian they were talking to, that was a meaningless gesture. But if they were, so let's say I was standing here and I made this little arc here, the other person would move forward and complete the other half of the arc, thus drawing the ichthus on the ground, and they would instantly know I'm communicating with a fellow believer. It's kind of a neat story. It was on their meeting places. They even put the the symbol of the fish on gravestones. Now, there's an example of an old gravestone that we have a picture of here. Now, this is not the stylized ichthus, but you can literally see two fish on either side there. This doesn't mean this person was a fisherman. What it means is right above it, you see on the left the word ichthus, and then that zotone on the other side, that has to do with living again. It has to do with resurrection. This was a statement of faith on an early believer's tombstone. It's interesting, anymore we put a cross that indicates we're Christian on ours. In those days, they very often put the fish. All right, so what's the point of this? Why am I telling you this? Well, there's this beautiful symbol. The thing is, it, fell, it, it kind of fell out of use um, because once Christianity became a faith of a lot of different languages, Ichthus didn't mean anything anymore. We didn't speak Greek. Greek as a language became isolated just to a small group of people. So, so people quit using the fish because it was no longer a good acronym. I mean, fish in English doesn't mean anything about Jesus. So that's not useful to us. So it kind of fell out of use until around the 1970s when somebody rediscovered this ancient symbol and started to bring it back into the context of Christianity. There were still places where you could find it here and there, but nobody really knew what it meant until around the 70s it came back. And it's gained mainstream acceptance over the last 50 years, not to make you feel old, but the 70s were 50 years ago, just saying. Uh, One of the places you'll see it, and now that you know what it is, you can look for it, you'll see it in business advertising. Have you ever seen a little fish-looking thing on the side of somebody's business advertisement? Look for it sometime. What it means is this is a Christian-owned business, and people have begun to do that and put that on their advertising. But the place you saw it most often 
was as a magnet on somebody's car. Have you ever seen one of those on somebody's car? Or maybe a bumper sticker? If you have one on your car, please behave yourself in traffic because you're claiming to represent Jesus out there. So, so don't do that foolishly. That's, like, that's kind of like what I do. So I go around with my Force Lake Church mask on and I have to remember to behave myself in public because uh, it's good to carry the symbol of our faith, especially if it can remind us to be the people we claim to be. All right, so, so this symbol, when rightly applied, is a beautiful testimony of the deepest confession of Christianity. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and our Savior. But you know how the world is that we live in. Uh, not everybody is reverent. And we like to poke fun at things. And that's been done with this symbol. But I want to say to you that the symbols you mark yourself with matter. One of the points you need to understand from the book of Revelation is that the marks upon you matter. And what we want upon us is the marks of God, not something else. And it is in that context then that I introduce you to the words of the second angel. Revelation 14, verse 8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This is the message of the second angel. So we're focused on the three angels' messages this fall. We've spent quite a bit of time on the message of the first angel. And I told you, this is, represents the victory of God. And it has the three main components of God's victory in it. The everlasting gospel, the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Worship God the creator, the first great work of God. And the hour of his judgment has come. The point at which the, the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's what that represents. These are the three great components of the victory of God. He creates a world, he saves us even after we fall, and he will come again to restore his original order. That's what the first angel's telling us. But now I've suggested to you that the second angel is here to announce the failure of man. As much as the first angel is dwelling on the great victory of God, the second angel is telling us man has failed. And at this point, you might be a little depressed by that because what I'm here to tell you today is humanity has failed. We'll talk about that a little more as we go along. But I want to use, go back to this ictus as an example of how we fail and what the things we fail with are like. So to bear the symbol of the fish, the ichthus, is, is a relevant thing. And it's something that if you're going to do it, you need to follow through your, your profession all the way to its conclusion. So in other words, if you believe Jesus is the Christ, you believe he is the Son of God, you believe he is the Savior, then you need to follow through on those conclusions. That should have impact in your life. You should be a person who seeks that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. But like I said, people like to poke fun, especially at things that some people perceive to be precious and religious. And so there's some other symbols out there that you might see on a car. Here's one of them. Okay, it's based on the ichthus, but it's a rocket now because we're going to put our faith in science. That's, that's what that means. There's another one, and this one galls me the most. It's even trademarked, so you can make money on it. The Darwin fish. Now, let me say this. I give high points 
for clever. It's very clever. Because what it's saying is, yeah, we've evolved past the petty and foolish notions of faith. Because, right, that's, that's the evolution thing, right? But here's the problem. It's really not funny. And I don't think the second angel is laughing. He says, and there followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Why does this matter? Am I making a, a mountain out of a molehill? Well, let me tell you why I believe this matters. You see, the ichthus symbol means that we believe that we are saved by grace through the everlasting gospel, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's his identity. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It also means that we believe there was an intentional creator who intentionally created, and therefore there is a purpose for our existence and an ultimate future for us based on that creator. And third, it means that we believe this Jesus who saves and this God who created will in the end restore his original purpose. That's what we mean by bearing that symbol. It's the victory of God. It's the message of the first angel. But what does the Darwin fish imply? Well, first of all, it's a mockery of the identity of Jesus. Because it's taken the ichthus, the fish, the acronym that, that identifies who Jesus is and turned it into something else. So first of all, it's a mockery of the identity of Jesus. Secondly, it's a mockery of the identity of God as creator. Because the whole notion of Darwinism that developed was that there is no creator, there is no need for a God. And third, if you follow the logic through, it means this life is it. There's nothing more to hope for. And in truth, you're just an inferior reality on the way to something better. You find a lot of hope in that? Is it still funny? An absolute denial of Christ, an absolute denial of God, and a claim that there's no purpose to your life until something comes along to kill you off so that something better can take your place. Does that sound like a philosophy you want to live in? Is that satisfying on a deep level? One of the problems we have is that, that we live in a, a bit of a shallow reality. We don't tend to think our premise all the way through to its conclusions. And this is where I give Bill Nye credit. I, I played a video from him a few be weeks back when we were talking about creation, and, and he's very much not a believer in that. But I give him credit because he, he actually carries through his premise all the way to its conclusion. He's not somebody that believes in an afterlife because it doesn't make sense to his premise. But unfortunately, we live in a shallow age and everything is just kind of a mishmash of pop culture and pop psychology and pop theology. Everybody's got a little piece of something, but very few people live with a coherent framework for their lives. You know when I find it most ironic? I find it most ironic when people who otherwise live a fully secular life don't proclaim any faith at all when someone they love dies. You know, nobody believes in anything except for the fact that their loved one is in a better place. Well, where are you getting that? 
What are you basing that on? That's about the most irrational conclusion you could possibly make if, in fact, you're believing there is no God, there is no creator, there is no judgment. Talk about superstition. It's not a rational conclusion from the Darwin fish. It's not a rational conclusion from the rocket fish. One of the problems we have is we so often believe we're the first wise generation to ever live on earth. Ever notice that? Every new generation is sure everybody that came before them was an idiot. They have no idea what they're talking about. The things I'm thinking, no one's ever thought. The things I'm doing, I'm the first one to ever do. Nobody's ever had this idea. Nobody. Well, there was a man who would argue with that. His name was Solomon. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, he wrote, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, Look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Now you might say, oh, well, we built cars, we built airplanes, we built rocket ships. Okay, technically those are things that might not have been built before, but did it really change the human condition? It doesn't. It doesn't matter what we invent. It doesn't matter what we build. It doesn't matter what we chase after. We all live to a certain point and then it stops. Right? It doesn't change it. Do you think he's being too pessimistic? Let me go on. Verse 16. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after wind, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Can anybody say 24-hour news cycle? You want to be miserable? Stay up on the news. Spend your whole life knowing what's going on. Yeah, no. It, it, that's why people take vacations from Facebook. I gotta love the way everybody's got to announce, I'm taking a vacation from Facebook or something like that. It's always funny. Anyway, that, no. It's not helping. Here's what I'm saying. Humans have failed. And our only hope is an intervention from God. That's the point. Humans have failed, and we keep failing, and our only hope is an intervention from God. Let's look at the Darwin theory for a second. The notion here is long ago things were bad, but they got better and better and better and better and better, and and the only hope that it's going to get better from here is that, that we'll all die out and something better will come along. But it probably won't matter in our lives, but still, that's, that's it. And I give credit, like I said, to guys like Bill Nye. He calls it exciting. I'm not sure I would go there. 
I bet he wouldn't like it too much if the next thing to come along came to his house and killed off him and everyone he loves so that they could be better. But that's kind of how it works. The truth is, rather than exciting, I find this idea that permeates our culture of Darwinism to, to be the best argument I've ever heard for clinical depression. You have no origin, you have no purpose, and you have no, for, no future. Now go have a nice day. If that doesn't make you a hedonist, it definitely will drive you to depression one way or another. See, this is what Solomon is talking about. He's talking about, I'm looking at the material world, and all I see is, yeah, it had a good start, but then it crashed. Yeah, it looked good for a while, but then it fell apart. Yeah, I thought that was it, but then it wasn't. Has this been your experience? Look at your life. Be honest with the things you've seen. All the human-centered efforts to permanently solve the problems of humans look good for a while, but then ultimately crash and burn. It's as though the thing that destroys something is already in it at the beginning before it even gets going. Something new comes along. We all jump on it. It's great. We, we do well in its strengths, and then it falls apart, and we abandon it, and we jump on the next new thing, and we jump on the next new thing. I'll give you some examples that I can think of. It's hard to believe it was 19 years ago, but 19 years ago was the September 11 attacks at the World Trade Center and the, and the Pentagon. And if you were alive and... and uh, old enough to be aware of that whole experience, you remember how we were galvanized as a people during that time. There was a coming together. There was a sense of, of, of corporate connectedness. I mean, it boggles the mind if you look out at the environment now that, that there was a point where we felt united across the board, across race, across the aisle, all of that. We felt united in a singular purpose. And one of the pieces of that singular purpose was to make sure we dealt with those who who did this in the first place. And it led to the conflicts in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And 19 years later, we still have over 4,000 troops in Afghanistan still trying to solve that problem. Yeah, it looked good at the beginning, didn't it? It kind of fell apart. Here's another one, World War II. It was an alliance between Britain and the United States and the Soviet Union that brought down the evil empire of the Nazis. Yet, when the war was over, that good thing would turn into a bad thing called the Cold War that would give us Korea, Cuba, Vietnam, and many other examples. Looked good for a while. Let's go back further, the Industrial Age. When the Industrial Age got going, all of a sudden there was this, this capacity to feed lots of people and to make the kinds of things we need and to expand civilization and, and to expand and, and improve the quality of people's lives. And all through the years, people kept saying, yes, it's hard right now, but down the road, we'll be so good at making things. We'll have so many things that the average person won't have to work more than 10 or 20 hours a week. They'll have everything they need. How's that working out for us? No, you know what we do? 
We work 40, 50, 60 hours a week to pay for the stuff we already bought that we didn't have the cash to pay for in the first place, and now we don't have time to actually use because we're spending all of our time working. It's not working out, is it? And in fact, the industrial age led to a lot of really bad things, like people got a whole lot of resource and oppressed others. And we polluted the environment, the air and the water. Yeah, it looked good for a while. The whole reality of government, where people are, are, are somehow, we try to bring people into some sort of a functional order, through the years has been a good thing. And in fact, the Bible speaks to it. God has appointed government. But government has also been responsible for genocide and, and oppression. Early on, those of you that have a European heritage, your forefathers and foremothers were called barbarians for a reason. A certain chieftain would get strong, he'd defeat everybody around him, and he would control a big area until he died, and then everybody would fight again until the next chieftain arose, and then everybody would fight again, and then finally one day they said, this is stupid, let's do a thing called hereditary monarchy. You be king, and then your son will be king, and then your son will be... And that made sense except for the fact that the son was not always as smart as his father. And this model that kept people from fighting all the time fell apart because some of the rulers were just dumb. And the only reason they were there was because daddy was king. Not a great system. See, why am I telling you that these are, these are the works of humanity. These are the things we do. These are our attempts. Communism, promised rule to the working folk that, that were produced by the Industrial Revolution. But in the end, George Orwell pointed out so well in Animal Farm, it did little more than create a new set of tyrants. Looked good for a while. Even democracy has proven to be anything but perfect when it comes to solving human problems. To the point where sometimes I wonder, maybe we're at our best when we're completely locked up and can't do a thing. I can't imagine what we'd be like if, if one side or the other had all the power. It would be even worse than now. So why? Am I just being pessimistic here? Well, here's the thing. I believe there's a reason everything breaks down. And I believe it's because God cares about us. Now, that may sound strange. Let me back that up. Genesis chapter 11. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So here's what they're saying. This is after the flood. They get together. They say, all right, we all speak the same language. We don't trust God. He'll send another flood. So let's not let him spread us out. Let's stay united against God. And we'll build ourselves a great tower in our own name. Verse 5, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. 
The Lord said, if, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So on the face of it, you look at it and you say, well, that was kind of mean for God to come down and mess up what they were doing. But let me tell you, I believe it was an act of grace. And here's why. When fallen humans are united, they may think they're united for good, but in the end, they're united to destruction because that is our nature. And so God said, if there's going to be anybody left to save when I send my son Jesus, I've got to get these people apart. And so he confused their languages. And when you can't communicate anymore, you move apart, right? And so they moved apart to all parts of the world. Now, just a little aside here. God doesn't intend for us to stay divided forever. He intends for us to come together. But you know how he intends for us to come together? Not through another human plan, but through Jesus. Do you remember what happened on the day of Pentecost? Do you remember they're gathered in the upper room and the, and the flame comes down and they begin to speak in other tongues and everybody hears the message of Jesus in their own language? This is the first step in the undoing of Babel. God divided us because together we're united to destruction. But around Jesus, he's trying to bring us back. This is an important point, this reality about the division. I believe that it's part of God's mercy that he has decreed that all human-centered plans will ultimately fail. And why do I say this is a mercy? Again, because ever since the fall of humans in the Garden of Eden, Whenever humans became united in any human-centered endeavor, in the long run, it's never been a good thing. Rather, it is a prelude to destruction. This is exactly how it was before the flood, when God says the imaginations of the hearts of humans was evil continuously, and the only one left of that generation faithful was Noah and his family. So God has declared that there will never be that kind of unity amongst fallen humans, but rather war and conflict, death and destruction. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? But why? Because as terrible as these conflicts between us are, they're nothing compared to the horror of a world filled with a united godless humanity bent on evil and destruction. I'll say it this way. In truth, we should thank God that the world is as ugly as it is sometimes because if it wasn't this bad, it would be worse. That's a crazy thought, isn't it? That the only reason the world isn't worse than it is is because it's as bad as it is. It's because we're set against each other. If we united, we would completely cut God out. It's a crazy thought. You see, I'm not surprised when everything breaks down. You see, the place where they built the tower was called Babel, and that same area would later be called Babylon. 
comes from that name. Babylon, of course, was the nation that came and crushed Judah when Judah had united itself against God. It represents oppression, but it also represents confusion. And as we spend the next couple weeks talking about the failure of man, we're going to talk about oppression and we're going to talk about confusion and how the angel comes to say these words. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So let me ask you this. What human institution are you putting your hope in? Government? Okay, I'm not just saying negative. God uses government to do good. Imagine the anarchy if we didn't have it. Yet, in the long run, it's not really going to matter who we elect. I mean, there'll be seasons. But there's no solution in a human unless that human is Jesus. It doesn't mean don't be involved. It doesn't mean don't, don't promote. But it does mean don't be so committed that you're more committed to your party than to your God. Don't go there. Philosophy? Is philosophy going to save us? No, it's a dead end. Education? You're going to finally learn enough? Here's the problem with education. Anybody that's really educated knows this. The more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Science? You're going to put your trust in science? Unless they can come up with a way to cryogenically freeze your brain and then one day reattach you to some electronic body, I don't know what else it's got for you. Here's one. Here's a twist. Religion. See, the problem with a lot of religion is it's become a little too much of a human-centered endeavor. We'll talk about that as we go. Where are you going to put your confidence? You see, if you focus solely on the material world, then you will see reality as an endless cycle. And in this sense, I think we've got to hand it to the Hindus and the Buddhists who see reality as this circle of, rea- uh, of events because, because here's how it goes. Everything has this hopeful beginning, right? And then a time of development, and then an era of effectiveness, and then an, invent- an event- inevitable decline, and then a collapse started by something new. It happens, it's, it's a life cycle. It happens with churches. It will happen with this church, should the Lord not return. We're in one of those eras of, of effectiveness and development, and this is a great time, but, but it's not going to last forever. Just go to Battle Creek, Michigan, the place that used to be the center of everything Seventh-day Adventist. Not anymore. 
The only human realities you can name that have not followed and proved this cycle, they just need a little more time. But that's why we don't base our larger understanding of reality simply on the material world. We see the material world, we respect its reality, but we get the larger picture from the Word of God, from Revelation. And that Scripture tells us that in the last days, Three angels will fly. One talking about the victory of God, the everlasting gospel, God as creator, and the judgment to come. But then another angel is going to come along and say, compare that with how man keeps failing. This is all very important because when we get to the third angel, the third angel is going to say, now choose. You want to be a part of the victory of God? Do you want to be a part of the failure of man? That's what they're telling us. But here's where I want to leave you so that you're not despairing. Even though it's true that all the labors of man, all of our attempts to build utopia, all of our grand works and institutions and monuments to ourselves, even though all these things will pass away, we are not lost. Because the everlasting gospel tells us that Jesus is our Savior and that the God who made us is still the God who loves us and that the time has nearly come when God will put an end to all the vain imaginations of man and bring about the only kingdom that lasts forever. Do you remember we talked about Daniel 2? Daniel 2 was the image with the head of gold and the shoulders of silver and the belly and the thighs of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay and how that represented the kingdoms of the world, Babylon and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. You know, where's Babylon today? It's gone, right? Mm, rise and fall. Medes and the Persians, rise and fall. Greeks, rise and fall. Rome, rise and fall. Nations today, iron and clay, mixed, no singularity. But you know what? The next thing to come is the stone cut without human hands. Smashes every bit of the image. The wind blows the failure of man away. And the stone becomes the kingdom that lasts forever. Now, which kingdom do you want to be part of? Babylon? It's already over. Medes and Persians? No. Greece? No. Rome? No. One of these last ones? I want to be a part of the kingdom that comes, that grows, that lasts forever. This is the victory of God. This is the message of the Ichthus, Jesus Christ, Son of God. Savior, put your hope there, not in the failure of man. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to see this reality. Help us to 
to live no longer in the failures, but instead in hope of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.